0: Shabbat shalom, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay, good. It's it's often said that you can uh, judge a society by its leaders, but I think you can also judge a society by the people uh, that it celebrates, in particular the people that maybe it mourns uh, who pass away. It always seemed to me, certainly over the past number of decades, that when you look particularly at the more liberal Jewish world, the world that we all populate and live in. That the people that we roundly mourn when they pass away tend to be great philanthropists and politicians, which are worthy of being mourned, but we're missing one category. And the category that we're missing of people in the Jewish world that we should be mourning are great Torah scholars, the people who actually bring Judaism to life Now, routinely, roundly, in the more orthodox circles of the Jewish world, the passing of a great sage is a moment of communal convulsion. It is not unusual at all to see, either in New York or Jerusalem or B'nai Brak to see not hundreds or thousands, but tens of thousands of people jamming streets to accompany uh, the remains of a great Torah scholar to their final resting place not something we see in our world. I won't even say very much. I would say probably at all. In fact, I would add another little item to it, and that is, I suspect that we don't even know when a great Torah scholar passes away. We certainly know when a politician or philanthropist does. And I bring this to mind, of course, because one of the most outstanding, outstanding Torah scholars of the past hundred years passed away this week. He um, was not a member of the Orthodox community, although he was a strident traditionalist. His name was David Weiss Halivni. Halivni, along with Saul Lieberman, were two of the greatest. Now, I'm, I'm not making hyperbole here, so listen carefully. They were two of the greatest Talmudists of the past hundred years. Consider, consider this. There are, on any given day, hundreds of thousands of Jews who study Talmud for hours every day. When I grew up as a child, starting from grade five, certainly when I got into high school, my Talmudic studies probably fluctuated between five to six hours a day. I didn't study Bible. We didn't study those things. We were supposed to do that on our own private time. We woke up in the morning. We went to davening, we had breakfast, and then we went to the Beit Midrash to the study hall. It was 9.30 in the morning, and boom, you started. And it would go till about 12.30. You'd have lunch breaks some secular studies for about four hours. And then you'd go back to the Beit Midrash for another two, three hours of Talmudic study. So there are hundreds of thousands of Jews who study Talmud every day. There are great rabbinical leaders in these Talmudic academies throughout the Jewish world who study and teach Talmud every day and write on it extensively. And yet, I'm sitting here on this Shabbat morning and saying to you, the two of the greatest Talmudists who have lived over the past hundred years were not residents of the Orthodox community, although they were stridently observant and traditional. The first was Saul Lieberman. Saul Lieberman, if you don't know about him, go learn about him. Start with the Wikipedia entry, and you won't stop there. And then his student, David Weiss Halivni, who at the age of 94 just passed away, I think it was on Thursday. And so I want to talk a little bit about David Weiss Halivni. Halivni was not, like Saul Lieberman, was not born in North America. He came from Europe. We'll get to that in a moment. But Halivni's great academic scientific contribution to Jewish life can be seen in a myriad of ways. I'm going to break down his theory into a a very, very short kind of explanation that I'm going to give you a practical understanding about how it actually affects how we live. He argued a foundational idea in Judaism has been misunderstood. Now, we know that traditionally in Judaism, we say there are two Torahs. There's a written Torah that Jeff read beautifully for us this morning called in Hebrew, the Torah, the written Torah. It's the scroll. It's called the written Torah because it is There's a second Torah called the Torah Shabbat, Peh, the oral law. The idea was is that there was this concomitantly developed oral tradition of laws that were given in tandem with the written law. The classic example to give life to the existence of the oral law is in the first paragraph of the Shema it says, am mizuzot that you should write them as a sign upon your doorpost." What mitzvah does that refer to? The mitzvah of mezuzah. In anywhere in the written Torah does it say where to put the mezuzah? No. Does anywhere in the Torah does it say what you write on the mezuzah? No. And so this idea of an oral tradition developing alongside the written tradition is a long-established concept in Judaism. So what did Halivni say? what happened was, starting in the early Middle Ages, was an argument, a developed theology, that the oral law and the written law were given to Moses at the same time for Sinai. And it became almost canonical, canon-like, established as almost de facto thinking that the oral law and the written law were both simultaneous acts of revelation. And therefore, they were hard and concrete. In other words, they were not subject to human reasoning or human rationalizations or human deviations. And this idea, in part, certainly became understandable because in the Middle Ages, what kind of world did the Jews live in? They lived in a very canonical world. It was canonical if you lived in a Christian society. It was top-down, very heavy. The church said things people believed them. And then certainly was the case if you lived in northern African uh, Islamic communities. It was really no different. And so the Jewish world responded in the same. Halivni comes and says, it's a mistake. That the oral law was not like the written law. The written law, when something is written down, It's written down and you don't take an eraser and scrape away things, it's written. But the oral law, he says, wasn't given to Moses the same way the written Torah was. It developed and developed and developed. And how does this affect our lives? It affects our lives in a very practical way. Because if we're prepared to say that what Jews thought during the Middle Ages was wrong then we're also prepared to say that we don't have to live like Jews who lived in the Middle Ages. That our ideas about how we integrate into the modern world, how we understand technology, how we understand human rights, how we understand the role of women and the raising of children and human sexuality, all of those things are subject to reinterpret, reinterpretation and change. But if you think that the way that we're meant to live is like someone who lived in 15th century Warsaw, then you can't reconsider those things. And so Halevni's contribution to the Jewish world was enormous. He gave light and breathing space for people to reconcile modernity, individualism, the conception of what it means to be an autonomous human being, which are all the things, the byproducts of the modern world, with an ancient tradition. In other words, Halivni undertook the most Jewish of enterprises, the act of reinterpreting what has been interpreted. But there's another story I want to share with you about Halivni. I said to you that he came from Europe. And he did. He came from the same Hungarian town, as Elie Wiesel, did. Elie, Elie Wiesel did, Siget in Hungary. He wasn't born there by the way. He was born in Czechoslovakia, but it kept swapping hands back and forth between a few different countries. Um, he had a tumultuous childhood. I mean, in this time, it, this is what we're talking in the 1930s, early 1930s, late 1920s, his parents divorced. Father picked up and left. They ended up leaving Czechoslovakia, him and along with his mother, and they went to move where his grandparents lived. In and his grandfather a devout, uh, a devout, devoutly religious man. They were incredibly poor. And he grew up there, and very quickly he became known as an Eloise, a prodigy. So much so that by the age of 15, he had completed his full rabbinic ordination. At the age of 12, Uh, He had memorized 200 pages of Talmud, so much so that when he would walk through the street of Sigurd in Hungary, people would stop him and ask him to quote by heart certain sections of the Talmud, and if he answered it correctly, they would give him money. Now, he never made a mistake. (laughs) After the war, uh, his entire family, he wrote a book on this called The Book and the Sword. You would do well to include this in your summer reading about his experiences in the camp and what happened afterwards. His entire family was destroyed, he survived, and his beloved grandfather who had gone to the camp with him died as well, was murdered. Anyways, he makes his way to New York And as he tries to figure out where he was going to go, on one hand, he was thinking of going to Israel, but he wanted to study secular studies, and he was afraid in Israel he wouldn't be able to. So he goes to New York. Now he's 17 years old at this time. And he makes his way into the Jewish Theological Seminary, the rabbinical seminary of the conservative movement. He didn't speak any English. He only spoke Yiddish and Hungarian and they bring him into the school and they put him in a room and he is an orphan, he's broke and he doesn't speak the language. You can fill in the blanks about his mental condition, okay? And they didn't know what to do with him. They knew that he was a genius but they didn't know what to do with him. So who do they call? They call Saul Lieberman, the great Talmudist. Lieberman walks into the room, sits down with him, they start talking. And within a few seconds, they start going back and forth in a conversation on Talmud that lasts for about an hour and a half. At the end of the conversation, Halivni, the little boy, the 17-year-old boy, turns to Lieberman and repeats something again. And Lieberman says, are you sure? And the boy nods his head. The boy picks up and leaves. They shake hands. Lieberman had brought him into his home, and he would stay at JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary to study and then eventually to teach. And then Lieberman, the people who were in the room, saw Lieberman go over to a bookshelf, pull out a volume of Talmud and check what the boy said. And Lieberman said, I was mistaken, he's right. There are two acts of greatness here. The one act of greatness is the world that Halivni came from and Lieberman too. A world that is so utterly different than ours. So enmeshed in Jewish thought and Jewish learning, in the foundations of Jewish thinking, Talmud, Bible, philosophy, all the things that form a Jewish mind were part and parcel of the world that they lived and breathed. And that world is gone forever, my friends. That was Jewish Europe and it no longer exists. So the Nazis didn't only destroy Jewish bodies, they destroyed a Jewish world. But the other greatness we saw is that Saul Lieberman, one of the greatest Talmudists of his generation, about 30 years older than than the frightened orphan in front of him, had no problem with admitting that he had been corrected. Because in the pursuit of truth,